I'm about to study the incorruptible, inerrant word of God. I open my heart to God's message. I humble my mind to his wisdom, and I rest my hopes on his grace. I will accept its rebukes with repentance, rejoice in its truth by faith, and trust in its promises that can never fail. I can be what it says I can be. I can do what it says I can do. I can change what it says I can change as I trust in his grace and spirit. I covenant with God that I am ready to learn, I am ready to grow, and I am ready to change as I hide his word in my heart and honor Jesus Christ as the Lord of my life. Okay, children and young people, you may leave. The rest of you have a seat. Buckle up and get ready. Here we go. All right. As the children are getting ready to go to their time of worship and those who are in Pastor Kelly's discipleship class can dismiss themselves. Good morning, New Hope. Any of you remember this from last week? That was easy. That was easy. Yeah. We're going to pick up on our series, Easy Jesus? Question mark. And you may remember we kind of utilized that last week to introduce ourselves to this concept. We explored, uh, we started exploring several questions. And uh, the questions that we uh, start, we explored last week, and we're just going to do one a week, uh, was last week the question was, who are you? In regard to this identity uh, within the calling that Jesus gives us to be his disciples, who are you? And how does discipleship change your identity? And we explored that last week. And uh, in this second week, we're going to be changing that question slightly to whose are you? Whose are you? Now, we began last week pointing to the centrality of Jesus. And we began by affirming that indeed he has given us a finished work through his death on the cross and through his resurrection. He provides a salvation to all who truly believe, and we need only receive it as a free gift. And uh, we rehearse that wonderful fact. That is where we repurpose this little promotional device that was pretty popular several years ago. And uh, you remember that, uh, you know, it was called the easy button, you know, and it basically says... That was easy. You know, and... Uh, and we saw that back when this was kind of popular, uh, some Christian lad got an idea to create a wit witnessing t-shirt. And you remember it, it looked something like this, called the Jesus button. And it says, life's problems, one solution. It's just that easy. Now, the question there is, is that really true? And that's the question that we ask ourselves uh, last week. Is this true? And we found that the answer is not a simple, but it's a complex answer. Uh, it's important to understand that it is true that Jesus is the one who said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, Matthew eleven thirty. But this led us to ask, does this mean we Christians should expect an easy solution to all of life's problems. And there are people who think that becoming a Christian just means that God should solve all your problems. You should have an easy life. You should be blessed. You should be able to name it, claim it, frame it. And it's just all, you know, everything's going to be good. But is that what we truly find in the teachings of the New Testament and the teachings of our Lord? Not 
all, uh, not all of us have always understood that it's not about just pushing the Jesus button to make life easy. In fact, Jesus never promised an easy life to, in this world to his disciples. You can't find that in the New Testament. Nowhere did he promise an easy life. He did say, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. We learned last week that a yoke was a, something that was used for the trucking industry, you'll remember, and that a yoke was made to help them carry the loads that would be balanced on a large pole. Uh, in fact, it was around the wells that were kind of like the truck stops. All the guys would get together at the wells, and they would compare the yokes, and the ones who had bad masters who just provided sloppy yokes would show everybody all their bruises and all their blisters, and the ones who had good masters and had good custom-made yokes would go, boy, look at this. You know, kind of like the guys who got the new truck, you know, they'll show them off the new truck. Well, around the wells and the watering holes, that's where these guys gathered, and they talked about it. But Jesus said, I'm a good master. My yoke is easy, it's, and it means it's a yoke that fits you well and provides, but and my burden is light. It'll be just the right size. It won't be too much. And so we learned that Jesus was not saying that he's not going to put us to work, but he's going to put us to work in a way that we will be able to uh, truly find our value. But Jesus never promised us in this world as his disciples that it would be easy. In fact, he actually promised us quite the contrary. He reminded his disciples as a last-minute point of essential information that they must never forget. And here's what he said to them. I have told you all this, and he was talking about all the issues they're going to be facing in persecution. He said, I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. In this world, you will have trouble and sorrows. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, it is wonderfully true that this warning about having troubles and sorrows in this life, in this present world, is sandwiched between two awesome affirmations. The first one is that in Jesus, we can have peace. And he's not talking about peace where there's no problems. He's talking about peace in the midst of problems. Or as we often say, peace in the midst of the storm. It's having Jesus with you in your boat, so to speak having someone who can calm the storm and make sure you survive the storm. So Jesus is saying, you're going to have peace in this world? No, you're going to have peace in me. And we're going to see how important it is that we learn to live our lives in him. Because without that, we cannot have that peace. Then he said, in this world, you will have trouble and sorrows. And then comes the next beautiful positive affirmation. He basically says... But I've overcome the worldly powers and their systems and cultures that will give you all these troubles and all these sorrows. So cheer up, take heart. I've overcome it. And what he's saying there is I am the conquering Jesus. Through the cross and through ultimately his resurrection, he conquers all evil. He conquers death, hell, and the grave. Therefore, he's the conquering Jesus. And when he invites us to become his disciple... He's not just inviting us into some kind of peace where there's no strife or problems. He's inviting us into his mission. And we're going to see that that discipleship means that he is also the conquering Jesus. So, of course, this leads us to ask a question. 
uh, which is it? Which is it? Is it easy Jesus or conquering Jesus? <laughs> which is it? Well, the answer is profoundly straightforward. Of course, it's both. It's both. Salvation is provided by Jesus free for those who will trust him. But this salvation is provided free with a purpose. So it's provided by Jesus free for those who will trust him. But this salvation is provided free with a purpose. And that's important for us to get a hold of. When God saves you, he has purposes in mind for that. He's saving you not just for heaven in the future, which that's included. He's not saving you just so that you can have eternal life. Yes, that's included. He's saving you for purposes in your present life in the here and now as you walk and live with him as a disciple. That purpose is to redeem us so we are free and empowered to follow him and join his great mission to redeem all creation. You do understand that what has happened on planet earth and with man's fall and Satan deceiving us and enslaving us, that in a sense, God has made the liberation of mankind coterminous with the liberation of the whole creation. In other words, when he liberates one, he's liberating the other. In other words, somehow our story got so wound up in this according to God's design that by liberating us, he's liberating the whole creation. And that's what Paul says. He says that the whole creation is kind of personifying it. He says it's groaning and longing and waiting for the day when the children of God, the ones who are made the redeemed children of God, who are what God originally created mankind to be, are ultimately given their immortality because when they do, the whole creation will be pulled up with them. The whole creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay and death because we have been liberated from our bondage to decay and death. So, we are to join him on his mission. We are his flesh and blood body on planet earth. That's what the church is described as, the body of Christ. Jesus is still on mission. He's still trying to save the world, and he's trying to do it through you. His, his spirit lives in you. And he wants to empower you to join him as his disciple and to carry out his mission. And so this morning, as we continue to think about this, we need to think very clearly about discipleship. And that mission requires, as we saw last week, following and imitating Jesus. That's what discipleship means. It means to be someone who follows, who imitates, who consumes everything from your master. In many places, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that salvation is free to all who believe in him. He says they pass from death to life and will not come to judgment. That's John 5, 24, for example. And he's, he's making it clear, though, that in many places that believing in him means to believe so much that you're not just believing some facts about him, that he died for you and that he rose again. You can believe that and not be a Christian. Because you can say, I believe Jesus is God, and I believe he died for me and rose again, but I'm not willing to commit my life to him. And if you're not, then you still remain unsaved and doomed 
Because the fact that he did that doesn't save you. It's when you decide to trust yourself to his solution and activate it in your life as a living reality by faith and trust. And so we are called to do that as disciples. But when Jesus describes discipleship, as we read last week from Luke's gospel, he makes it crystal clear that discipleship is demanding. In fact, It demands everything we have and everything we are, even our very life. And discipleship is necessarily integrated with trusting Jesus for the free gift of salvation which he provides. You can't have the one without the other. You can't say, I'm a Christian and I'm a disciple of Jesus and I believe that my sins are taken care of, but then you never actually live your life in the context of his lordship and expect to walk with him every day, 24-7, which you should. Because you see, in our culture today, especially in evangelicalism, well, not just in evangelicalism, I should say, in Christianity, in American Western culture, we kind of got off into one of two ditches, and Jesus and the kingdom kind of disappears in both of us. One ditch on what we might say the theological right is that the gospel's just been reduced to sin management. It's all about getting your sins forgiven, getting your guilt gone, and now you're good. You got your get, your get out of jail free card. That's all you got to worry about. Now, if you happen to become a good Christian and you do some good work, well, wow, that's, that's good. That's what we want to see happen. That's what should happen. But if you don't, at least you got your sin problem managed. You got it taken care of. You got your little get out of jail free card. Unfortunately, that's not the gospel. According to the Bible, if that's your attitude, you don't have your get-out-of-jail-free card because you really haven't trusted Jesus. You have come to a kind of a formula, and you think you got it, and now you can just go on living your life any way you want. No, it doesn't work that way. Jesus cannot be duped. On maybe what we might call the theological left of that is the other ditch where people kind of turn it into a social gospel, and it's all about, you know, My being committed to the right causes and being committed to, you know, the right social issues and trying to set things right in the world and all that's important too. Just like trusting Jesus for your forgiveness of sins is important. But they kind of reduce the gospel down to social activism and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, fighting for social justice, which by many definitions turns out not to be just at all. Because it looks for ways to divide people over more and more issues and pit them against each other rather than unite them and bring them together in love, which is the true Christian message. But the point is, is that these two ditches kind of leave out Jesus and it leaves out the kingdom. We're not called to just be forgiven. We're not called to be social activists, even though we will be social activists, and we will get on the side of right causes. The point is, we're called to be disciples in his kingdom now, right now. Not just go to heaven later, we're called to live a life now that the Holy Spirit is in charge of, that is expressing the desires, the power, the love of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus came to preach. Now, remember, we started talking about how Jesus defined discipleship. And let's look at that passage in Luke again, where he says this, If you come to me to be my disciple, 
By comparison, remember I put this in so you'd understand how they heard this. Because he said, by comparison to your love for me, this was a common way they spoke in those days, which might not make as much sense to us. You must hate your father and mother, your wife and children, your brothers and sister, yes, even your own life. So what Jesus is saying is, you love your mother and father, you love your wife and children, you love your brothers and sisters, but your love for me has to be so great and so unlimited and without boundaries that in comparison to your love for all these other things that are so important to you, that's got to almost look like hatred. And that was a common way of speaking in the first century. So that's what Jesus meant by that. Otherwise, he says, if you can't do that, you cannot be my disciple. That's pretty straightforward. It's not like he uh, left any doubt about that, did he? And anyone who does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Any of you who does not give up everything they have cannot be my disciple. Three times Jesus says you cannot be his disciple if you are not willing to love him more than everything else. You must love him supremely. You must value him supremely because you supremely need him in your life. And yes, you must be willing to carry your cross and follow him, which means to imitate him. He took his cross to Golgotha and died there. We must die to our present life so we can also be resurrected to a new life. And we must be willing to give up everything for his cause. We must consider his mission and he himself to be absolutely supreme over all. So, as I've said several times, I even said it last week, Jesus requires just one thing of everybody, everything. And he said it very clearly here. And of course, I told you many times, I'm quoting my father there. That was one of his favorite sayings. However, Jesus requires everything of us because he longs to give everything to us. And he wishes to give it to us in immortal form. You see, we sometimes wince at the fact he requires one thing of everybody, everything. It's like we're getting a bad deal. Jesus is a terrible taskmaster. No, he's a savior who loves you. And he wants you to give him everything so he can give you everything. He wants to take your plastic pearls and give you real gems. He wants to give you real life, not temporary, phony, doomed life. He wants to give you something so much better. But as long as you cling to what you have, he can't give you what he wants to give you. And so he longs to give us everything. And he wishes to give it to us in immortal form. Now, what do we mean by that? But immortality, resurrected, indestructible life, only exists on the other side of Jesus' tomb. So if Jesus longs to give us everything in immortal form... That only comes on the other side of Jesus' tomb where he is resurrected as the first human to be resurrected from among the dead to be resurrected eternally and to have an indestructible life as a human being. He's also God, but he's also the one human being who is resurrected beyond death and will never die again. But... It should be clear we cannot exit out of Jesus' tomb unless we are truly united to him. In other words, as Paul would say, in him. By absolute trust in him, 
of all that we are and all that we have. In other words, you get into Jesus by trusting him and trusting yourself to him. That's what faith is. It's not just believing some facts about him. It's about allowing him to take over the management of your life. And it's about a relationship with him by absolute trust in him of all we are and all we have and all we hope to ever have. And we cannot be united to Jesus in order that we may exit his tomb into resurrection life unless we are also united to him in his death on the cross. As you read the New Testament, over and over and over, you're going to encounter the cross, the cross. We must be united to his cross. Jesus says, you got to take up your cross and follow me or you cannot be my disciple. And some people say, well, this makes Christianity morbid. They talk about death all the time. Well, that's because people don't understand what Jesus is talking about. Because the truth is, life is dominated by death. Because so far, Jesus accepted, and even he died, but he rose again. The percentage of the people who die is one out of one. It's 100%. You're not going to escape it. You have to go through it one way or the other. What Jesus does is give us a redemptive way to go through it so that we conquer it instead of being conquered by it. And we cannot be united with Jesus to exit out into the new creation, so to speak, through his tomb into the resurrection new creation unless we are united to him in absolute trust. And that was Jesus' point when he warned us that unless we give up our lives by taking up our cross and following and imitating him, we're going to lose our life. In other words, we can, he cannot remake what we do not give completely to him. And nothing in us that has not died in Christ can be resurrected in Christ. You see... Left to ourselves, our own resources, our tomb is death that leads to eternal death, which is the separation of the spirit and the body that leads to the separation of the total person, a person's total soul. That's what you are, your total self, from God and his new creation. But nothing in us that has not died in Christ can be resurrected in Christ. That's why Jesus says, give me everything so I can remake everything and raise you. And give you everything. Give you everything in immortal form. But some people are still clinging to this life, trying to manufacture their own identity through their own successes and through their own professions. And all that's fine, but you must understand it won't be enough. You've got to find your identity in Him. Therefore, we come up against the necessity of taking up our cross and imitating Christ. And by our faith in him, allowing him to, if you allow me to say it, kill our natural life so he can gift us with a new, immortal, eternal life. You can't have both at the same time. If you want the resurrected, immortal life inside of you, you got to let this natural life you're clinging to that you want to control and be in charge of, you got to let it die. And the cross is the instrument for that. And you've got to believe in Jesus enough to embrace that cross. In Christian insight into reality, what the Bible calls revelation, 
The Bible says that when Christians see things as God sees things, they actually see reality. The world says we don't see reality. We're dreaming of some kind of pie in the sky. Well, they're wrong. They're going to discover that when Jesus appears in the sky, it's not pie. It's reality. And he's not coming back as a baby this time. He's coming back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. But when Christian in with in Christian insight into reality, what the Bible calls revelation, which comes through properly understanding Jesus and his cross and resurrection, death is, rep- is repurposed in him and in him alone as a weapon to kill death's power. Here's the interesting thing. Death is what Jesus came to conquer and sin that causes death. And death is the instrument by which he conquered He took death, turned it on itself, and put death to death. And then he turned death into a servant that has to serve him and his people. What does that mean? Well, two things. One, we die in Christ to that old self that is doomed and that's a redemptive death because we're united with him when we do it. Therefore, we have the absolute assurance that we will be resurrected when we pass through physical death because we have died with the one who is eternal life. And when Jesus impregnated death with his, his, his eternal life, he conquered death and made it his servant. And now it must serve you and me. So that's why we don't fear it. Now, it doesn't mean we like death. Death is still a result of the fall. It's still evil, and we have a sense of repugnance to it. But the point is, even though we understand that death is something that is shameful and it's something that natural man fears, we don't have to fear it anymore. Our Lord has conquered it. And aren't you glad? (laughs) And because he conquered it, we conquered. Jesus said, because I live, you also will live. Sounds like there's a little relationship there, doesn't it? It's because when we believe into him, we take on his life. Death is forced by the indestructible life of Christ to serve us. Jesus turns Satan's great weapon against him and destroys its power over those who trust him. Death can only do its terrible work in those who neglect or reject Jesus. But we must have enough trust in Christ to relinquish our doomed natural life to his cross cure. And that's what Jesus gives us. It's a cross cure. You got to take up your cross. You got to follow him. You got to be willing to be co-crucified with Christ, as Paul said. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not my ego, but Christ now lives in me. In other words, I've died to that old life. I've come alive to a new kind of life where Christ is at the center of that life. And when we do that, we take the cross cure. And that's what Jesus offers us as a cross cure. For in Christ, this new reality can only actualize in those of us who trust him without reservation. This understanding is the background of some of C.S. Lewis's most precise, you knew I'd get him in. Okay. Some of C.S. Lewis's most precise and powerful statements about death from within the Christian worldview, in other words, within reality as we understand it. You see, C.S. Lewis, in two of his uh, 
what we would say kind of his allegorical works. Uh, one of them was allegorical. Um, actually, both of them were. But he, uh, he, ma- he makes a statement that only makes sense within a Christian worldview. And you have to understand it. He said, for example, he said, the cure of death is dying. Now, if you're thinking about that in the worldly sense, that's like, well, yeah, the cure for death is dying because now you got it over with. You had to do it anyway. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying the cure of physical death and all that death is in in the death of our relationship between God and us and others is dying with Christ, dying to that old life so we can come alive to a new one. So the cure of death is dying. And that's why he also said in another one of his writings, he puts in the word of one of his characters, these words, die before you die. There's no chance after. Die before you die. There's no chance after. That's pretty profound in a few words. In fact, I told somebody, I said, that's almost canonical. Not quite. Because it's really taking something that Jesus taught and the apostles taught and saying it very, very succinctly to us in our modern vernacular. Die before you die. Die with Christ before you die physically because there's no chance after. It's this life where you get to choose. And so it's not hard to see why it is all or nothing. Jesus wants to redeem, remake, and resurrect the whole person. For that, the whole of us, all that we are and ever hope to be, must be surrendered to him and to his solution, his cross cure. That solution, his cross, is redemptive death connected to eternal life. And when we begin to see things clearly, we start to realize that the resurrection of Christ is a prophetic miracle. What do I mean by a prophetic miracle? miracle. Understand something. Jesus made several statements. He said, because I live, you also will live. And he was talking about his resurrection living, his resurrected immortal life. Because I have resurrection immortal life, you also are going to have resurrection immortal life. Jesus is the first fruits. You're all a bunch of fruits that are going to follow later. No, I'm just kidding. You get, I'm, I'm abusing the metaphor, but you understand the illustration. And the point is, is that Jesus is the first. And when he walked out of the tomb, it was a actualized event, historical prophecy that you too are going to walk out of the tomb. Wow, that's good. He didn't just say it. He made it happen. And when Jesus walks out of the tomb, it's a prophet, it's a prophecy that says, you're going to walk out of the tomb. You're going to walk out of the tomb. You're going to walk out of the tomb. You put your faith in Jesus, you're going to walk out of the tomb. That's why Jesus said in John 5, one day, everyone in their graves are going to hear the voice of the Son of Man. And all those who hear will live and will come out of their graves. Because he is Lord of all. He is God in the flesh. So... The resurrection of Christ is a prophetic miracle. Yes, it points to a future when all who are in Christ will be resurrected and mortal to be like Christ. And it, but it must begin now by choosing to belong to him as a disciple without reservation. And that brings us, actually, we're going to kind of sum up the message today by looking at that last question. 
And that brings us to this second question that we're going to engage. Remember last week our question was, who are you within the identity of the calling to be a disciple of Jesus? Who are you? And we examined that. Now we change the question to this. Within the identity, the context, whose are you? That's question number two. Now, the historical context will help us plug our understanding into what is happening as Jesus comes into these boys' life with his offer to be his disciple. Now, remember last week we read and talked about the fact that Jesus showed up in the village of Peter and John, and uh, Peter and Andrew, and John and James, and he said to them, come, follow me. And he invited them to be his disciple. Now, most people think that's the first time they ever met Jesus. No. If you put all the gospels together and everything, you understand that they knew they had met Jesus before. In fact, we're told that Andrew was following John the Baptist when he heard John the Baptist point at Jesus one day and go, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Is that the Messiah? And then later, the next day, he sees Jesus again. He says, look, the Lamb of God. And Andrew goes, okay, I got to go meet this guy. And so Andrew and another one of the disciples went and followed Jesus. And Jesus turned around and said, well, what do you want? And they said, well, Rabbi, where do you live? And Jesus said, well, come and see. And you remember the whole story. And they spent the day with him. And by spending the day with Jesus, they became convinced, John's right, this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. And so Andrew goes and tells his brother Peter, hey, we have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Philip goes and tells Nathaniel, we have found the one that the scriptures talk about, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel goes, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of there? Well, Philip said the right thing. Come and see. And you'll remember Nathaniel was a very a man of great integrity who became a disciple of Jesus, one of the twelve. But when Nathaniel comes and Jesus sees him coming, he says, Oh, behold. They spoke like that in those days, you know. Behold, look, here is an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Here's a man of real integrity who really lives his faith. And Nathaniel looks at Jesus and says, How do you know me? And Jesus said, I saw you when you were under the fig tree before Philip called you. And Nathaniel's mouth went, because evidently something was happening under that fig tree between him and God. And Jesus knew about it. He knew how significant it was. And Jesus said, yeah, I know all about that. I saw you. And Nathaniel is so dumbfounded. He says, Rabbi, you really are the Messiah, the Son of God. And he became his disciple. Well, a lot of them had that kind of experience. So Jesus is this new up-and-coming rabbi. You get this picture? He's becoming famous all over Israel. Crowds of thousands of people are showing up to follow him. And it's within that context that Peter and Andrew and John and James and ultimately Philip, they're going to become his disciples. But it's interesting that Jesus is going to do something very, very unique. And here's what I want you to do is to plug into the historical context. Let me tell you something so you'll understand this. All boys at age five in Israel 
when they began their fifth year, we would call it their fourth birthday. The Jews predate, we post-date. So when a child has their fourth birthday, we say they're four years old for a year, when really they're in their fifth year. So what Jesus does, I mean, what these boys did is on their fourth birthday, as we would say, when they began their fifth year, they would go to rabbi school every day. Now, what happened at rabbi school? They studied and learned and memorized the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, as we call it. At rabbi school, you were saturated in the Torah. And by the time Jesus calls these young guys, they're saturated in the Torah because they're in their late teens or early 20s. Now, at your 12th birthday, or what the Jews called their 13th year, you went from childhood to adulthood. And today, they celebrate that with, what's, with, with what is called a bar mitzvah. Now, in Jesus' day, they didn't do bar mitzvah, but they still understood the transition from childhood to adulthood. And the bar mitzvah is just simply a celebration of that transition. And a young man in particular would have his bar mitzvah because that's when he would become a son of the law and as an adult could swear allegiance to the covenant of the God of Israel and say, I'm going to live as a son of the law. Bar means son of, a son of the covenant, a son of the, of the, of the law. So this is what would take place. If you were one of the bright students... You know, you carried a 4.0 in rabbi school. Then you could ask the rabbi if he would take you to be one of his followers, his special graduate students, so to speak. His disciple was the designation. You see, when you're in rabbi school, you're not a disciple. You're just a student in learning the Torah. But if you were really good at it, and you were really bright... You could come and ask the rabbi. You had to come hat in hand because the rabbi wouldn't ask you. That was beneath his dignity. Now, I have to stop and tell you something here. I know today when you think of a rabbi, you think of somebody maybe who's pretty staid and pretty common and not very exciting. And, and I know some of them, uh, I remember I led a guy to the Lord in Israel who was a professor and he was a, a secular Jew before that time, but he came to Jesus. And, and I remember him saying, you know, those those Orthodox Jews, and especially their rabbis, they're wacko. I don't want anything to do with them. And I'm not sure that they're wacko, but that's what, that was his perception. But the point is, you must understand that the perception of the rabbis in Jesus' day inside of Israel was very different. They were like our sports heroes. They were the men everybody looked up to. They were the upper crust of society. They were the smart, wise, intelligent people that you listened to. And when they spoke, everybody else shut up and listened. These were the men of renown. And everywhere they went, they were respected. It was an terribly, and it was an honor culture, so it was very important. So you got to remember that these boys looked up to a rabbi. And if you had been under a rabbi, and you had been a good student, and you really wanted to continue studying with that rabbi, then you could come, so to speak, hat in hand, and say, could I be one of your disciples? 
No rabbi would ask you for that because it was beneath his dignity. And if you were good enough, he might say yes. And if you did, from that day forward, several things would happen. You would move into the rabbi's compound because you're an adult now. And you would actually move into his compound to live in his compound. Now, his compound includes a big school. He's still teaching younger kids. So you'll start helping as a graduate student, so to speak, to help teach the other kids. You'll do a lot of things. For example, one of the things you will do is you will get up every day, not only to study the scriptures, but to hang on the rabbi's every word. Daily, sitting at his feet and being taught. Not only what he teaches, but how he teaches it, how he explains it, even the inflection of his voice you will learn to imitate because you're going to be the one who will transmit these truths to the next generation when that rabbi is gone. He's chosen you to be that conveyor. Now, what's interesting, I need to ask you a question here. You, as a disciple, have a rabbi. You have a master. He's called Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Jesus do you hang on his every word? Do you every day find some time to spend with his word and, and try to really incorporate it into your life and spend some time praying and with his spirit and asking him to illuminate that word to you? So, because he's the one who illuminates it and makes it come to life as you spend time with your rabbi. You see, Bible reading is a prayer time. Lord, help me to understand, help me to see, help me to absorb, help me to know. Equip me to pass this on. Make it real in my life. So you hung on his every word. And you are willing to serve your rabbi in the most menial work and consider it a high privilege. You'll help teach the students. You'll clean up some of the classroom space. You'll help serve meals. You'll, you'll sweep the floors. You'll do whatever because you consider it a great privilege to serve your rabbi because it's a privilege to belong to him. It's a privilege to be called his disciple. You know, a lot of Christians have forgotten they're disciples of Rabbi Jesus. Do you consider it a privilege to serve him? Are you willing to do the most menial task if it's called for? Important question. The third thing is this. Your goal is to be like him. You are so taken by him that you imitate his every gesture and manner of speaking. Like I said, you don't just listen to what he says or what he teaches. You listen to how he says it and how he teaches it, his very inflection, his very mannerisms. It's an interesting story I, I heard someone share. He was over in Israel, and he said he was uh, near the Wailing Wall, and he saw a modern-day rabbi of the Orthodox Jewish sect. He was about 80 years old, and he was crippled, and he was shuffling along with a cane, and he was kind of leaning to one side because he evidently was crippled kind of in one leg. And he was headed to the Wailing Wall for prayer time. He had five disciples following him. Some, this person described them as 20-somethings. And these five guys who were following their rabbi, who's an 80-year-old rabbi, evidently fairly distinguished in Israel among the Orthodox Jews, they're following along behind him, 
and they are good students. He said, how do I know they're good students? He said, they were really taken with a rabbi. He said, they were so taken that they unconsciously adopted his very body posture. He is leaning to one side and shuffling along with his cane. And he said, all five of these 20-somethings are behind him, leaning to one side and shuffling along, even though they don't have to. He said, and they're not even conscious probably that they're doing it. But they are so absorbed with this man, they want to be like him so much that they've even adapted to some of his physical characteristics. Now, let me ask you a question. Is anybody connecting the dots here? The dots is really simple. We are to act like our rabbi, aren't we? We're to be so taken with him that we hang on his every word. We are willing to do anything he asks us to do. We want to serve him because we're his disciples. We want to act like him. We want to teach like him. That's what it means to be a disciple. We are to act like our rabbi, or we should. And our rabbi doesn't shuffle. He came to this earth in humility the first time, but he's coming back striding with power. And you and I need to understand we need to be like our rabbi, living in humility, but knowing that through him, we are going to rule and to reign forever. We are so taken by him, we hang on his every word, we count it a privilege to serve him, we belong to him. Uh, when my son Ryan went off to college, he came home and two things happened. He shared something with me after the first year. He had studied some material, and in that material, historical material, he had discovered studying the Roman Empire and the culture of the Roman Empire, which was quite cruel in some ways. And as you know, the Romans were uh, equal opportunity enslavers of many different cultures and people. Anytime they conquered somebody, they just turned them all into slaves if they didn't kill them. And so, you know, they would conquer the Greeks and they'd turn them into slaves. And they would conquer some of the barbarian nations in England and the Druids and stuff. They'd just turn them into slaves. And so, it was interesting in the Roman culture, though. If you got to be a slave of someone who was prominent, that kind of became the only honor you could have as a slave. What is more, among the Jews, slavery was not always conquest. Sometimes a person would be a slave or a servant, we might prefer to use the word, for maybe a period of time, five years, six years, seven years was the, considered the maximum you were supposed to do that. But the point is, is that they were doing that to pay off a debt. They might owe someone a large debt and they might say, I don't have the money to pay you, but I'll be your slave, I'll be your servant for seven years to pay this debt off. Remember Jacob did that to get a wife. He got deceived and had to end up doing 14 years to get and end up with uh, the finally end up with the one he wanted. But the point is, is that he became a servant to Laban, and that was how servanthood happened in Israel often. But the point is, in both of those cultures, there was the opportunity if, when you had an opportunity for freedom, if you really had a good master. And you loved your master, and he was giving you a good life, and, and you just liked being with him and serving him. You could, it might be better than trying to go out on your own. So you had a choice of becoming what was called a bond slave or a love slave. And remember in the Old Testament in Israel, they would take them 
to the doorpost and they would stick an awl through their ear and put a ring in there that was very identifiable that said, this person is a slave by choice of someone. They're a love slave, a bond slave, because they want to be this person's servant. And Ryan had learned in the historical documents of this particular historian that in the Roman Empire and sometimes in Israel, that a person who especially was a bond slave or a love slave would so lose their identity in being the master's servant that it was such a privilege to serve them because they were prestigious that they, if they were asked, who are you? They would not answer the question, who are you? They would answer the question, whose are you? Because what they would say is not, I'm John or I'm Bill or I'm Mary or what. No, they wouldn't answer that way. They would say, I am the slave or I am the servant of Hillel or I am the servant of Gamaliel or I am the servant of Philo. And that was their identity. And it was considered prestigious. And I'll never forget, you know, many of you know my son Ryan is a worship leader and a songwriter. He just came out with the third album. He doesn't let anybody hear the first one because he did it in college. But anyway, the, the second one just came out. It's on iTunes if you want to go find it. But the point is, is that he wrote a song back in his college days, and it was a powerful song. It was called, I Want to Lose My Identity in You. And it was just based on that whole concept that Jesus is my master, and I want to introduce myself as his disciple because disciples often did the same thing. I am the disciple of Rabbi Gamaliel. I am the disciple of so-and-so because it was prestigious. Would you be honored to be known as the disciple of Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Jesus? I hope so. Jesus said, if you won't identify with me publicly, I won't identify with you in heaven. Now, let me finish this off. If you're not one of the gifted students, a loser academically, then you didn't dare ask to be a disciple of a great rabbi. You went back into the trades. And in this case, Peter, Andrew, James, John, you went back to fishing. And that's what you were expected to do for the rest of your life. There is no ladder up and out. You will fish till you die. And that's what they're doing. And James and John had gone back and they're fishing with their father, Zebedee. And Peter evidently is old enough to have his own fishing company. He's got a few people working with him and his brother, James. But that's what they're going to do the rest of their lives. They were not among the rabbi quality students. But then this is what's so astonishing. You see, this is why, since there was no way up and out of that, this is why there were people like Levi, later known as Matthew, who were willing to sell their families, their social acceptability, and even their souls to become Roman tax gatherers, which at least gave them an economic ladder up and out and made them rich. But for these young men who think, this is what I'll do the rest of my life, There's, this is it. Jesus shows up in their fishing village as the most popular rabbi in Israel. He's being talked about everywhere. And Jesus shows up and looks at Peter and Andrew and says, 
boys, come follow me and I'll show you how to fish for people. Now, you've got to understand how stunned they had to be. No famous rabbi would ask anyone. That was beneath his dignity. This is an honor culture. You don't, rabbis don't ask people to be their disciple. You come begging to be their disciple. But Jesus in humility walks in and says, come, be my disciple. Wow. Their mouths had to be open. And then he walks a little bit further down the shore and sees James and John. And he says, boys, you know who I am, but I, I want you to come be my disciple too. And, he says, they, and it says of Peter and Andrew and James and John, they left their nets immediately, instantly, and followed him. Why? What a privilege to be called to be the disciple of such an incredible person. They went immediately. There's no questions asked. What's Jesus saying to them? Well, let's answer that question. Here's what he's saying to them. Loser no more. You were a loser. You couldn't ask to be a part of a, a disciple of a rabbi, especially a famous rabbi. But you're a loser no more. I'm the most famous rabbi in Israel. I attract, I attract crowds of thousands. And I want you to be my disciple, to carry on my mission, and to take to the world my message. They are, wow, us? We're just fishermen. No, I'm calling you. Wow, loser no more. <laughs> Do you see the implication? In this life's central issue of relationship with God, we were all losers ultimate losers. We didn't make the cut. We were not welcomed in the inner circle of the divine family. But then Rabbi Jesus walked into the fishing village of our heart and said, loser no more. I want you. Come, follow me. And that's what he's saying to some of you this morning. Come, follow me. He accepts us as his disciples and calls us to come. And this is where you get your identity. Your identity, you get it from him, not from what you accomplish in this world. We have been included. We have been accepted. We have been wanted by the greatest rabbi of all time and eternity. We are no longer outside. We are inside the innermost and highest circle forever. You know, Jesus is the way maker. So we must follow our rabbi who is the way maker. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know, that word in the Greek, to follow... It means to be found in the way with is really the real meaning of that term. To be found in the way with. So Jesus is saying, come, I want you to be found in the way with me. I want you to, wherever I'm at, I want you to be there. And that's what it means to be a disciple. It doesn't mean to do sin management or to get committed to the right social causes. It means to daily be found in the way with Jesus, him right beside you and his spirit living in you and you're living your life in the way with Jesus. That's what it means. Nothing less. The kingdom. So Jesus is the way maker. We must be found in the way with him. You could call Jesus in the modern vernacular and let me just... We follow him, and that's, like, that's the meaning I gave you from the Greek. But we could call him path treader Jesus. 
I guess if we put it in the vernacular of today. Uh, maybe we could call him Waymaker Jesus, like we talked about. Maybe we could call him GPS Jesus. <laughs> He's the only way you're going to find out who you are and where you are in the great story. In other words, you need Jesus. Jesus is the only way to find yourself and to do that. And you do that by first losing yourself in him. Remember what he said? Whoever wants to save their life will lose their self. Whoever willingly loses their self for me will save their self. So lose yourself in him and find yourself. Lose your identity in him and you will find your true identity. So I close with this really important question. Whose are you? You don't have any choice about belonging. Somebody says, well, I'm just my own person. Yeah, wake up. Grow up. That's not the way it is. You came into this world a slave to sin, death, hell, and the darkness and the lies of the enemy. And unless you choose to be liberated by Jesus, that's where you remain, in spiritual prison. But you can choose to answer the call. And he's calling to you today. And he's the only one who can liberate you. He's the only one who can help you find your identity in the royal family that's going to rule the new creation forever and ever. He is calling you to belong to him. Whose are you? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will help us this morning to think carefully about this question. Right now, with your head bowed, I'm going to ask again, many did last week, there may be some this week, that this is the moment that you're finally saying, you know, I need to nail it down. It's not just about getting my get out of jail free card. It's not just about being committed to the right causes. It's about living every moment of my life walking with Jesus, the friend who's closer than a brother who loves me. And I want to say yes to that call right now. And so I'm going to ask you with every head bowed, just raise your hand and say, include me in this prayer because I'm going to pray it with you. Yes, yes, I see those. I see those. Any others? Yes, yes, I see that one. Yes, yes. Okay. And this isn't just an easy way out, just letting you raise your hand. But by raising your hand, you're declaring, I'm going to identify with Rabbi Yeshua. He's going to be my master, my Lord, my Savior. Pray this prayer with me in your heart. Lord Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner who needs a Savior, and I believe you to be that Savior. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for defeating death, hell, and the grave for me. And thank you for offering to carry me through a death to the present life I have and burying that life and resurrecting me to live a new kind of life starting now. And I claim my new resurrection life in Jesus right now. And I believe your promise that whoever believes into you enough to obey that belief has, will not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Thank you. And now I pray that as each one of these commit themselves to you, that by your spirit, you will come and do the regenerating work in their life so that they will know that you have come to live in them and to walk with them 
every moment of every day. And they can be a true disciple who is found in the way with Jesus. And it's in your precious name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.